Welcome to the Alcorn Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Y'all ready to study your Bibles? Cool. Why don't you meet me in the sixth chapter of Mark's Gospel? And as you get there, I want to frame up our time. Our text this morning is a small portion with uh, very large consequences. Uh, That is to say that there's no way that you could be a child of God, a follower of Jesus, and read these couple of verses we're about to read, and your, your, your mind is stagnant and your soul, your spirit, your heart is dispassionate. Okay, But before we get to our portion for today, there's some things you need to know that came before. The first five chapters of Mark's writing, Jesus is active. He is on the move. He is doing the work of ministry, both in quiet and subtle places, like like healing Peter's uh, mother-in-law while she's bedridden by a fever and a headache. He quietly comes into the room and lays his hand on on her hand and says, get up, and she's healed. And then he's also doing this ministry in like large and audacious and, and, and spectacular ways where he He's teaching in Peter's home and and the whole neighborhood wants to hear what he's got to say so much so that people don't even fit in the house anymore. So they're kind of just crowding around the doors and the windows to even try and catch a glimpse of what he's saying. And and there's a a, a neighbor there who whose friend is is paralyzed and, and she knows that he's the healer. So she tears down Peter's roof to bring her friend in through the roof so that Jesus can heal him. And not only does Jesus heal him, he says something crazy. He goes, your sins are forgiven. The audacity of a teacher to pronounce to a man that his sins have been forgiven. And so he's doing it in the big and in the small. You need to know that there is a notoriety that is being attributed to Jesus's name, right? We see in chapters 3, 4, and 5, Jesus is often bombarded by crowds. He can't get away from people, even when he tries. But then something else happens just before the portion we're going to read. He goes to Nazareth, his hometown, the place where he grew up, where his family still lives. And he goes there to do this work. And they go, oh, no, you're just a carpenter's son. What you doing out here talking like that? There's no sort of notoriety, power, reverence to who he is in Nazareth. He is rejected by his hometown. After all the miracles, after all the work, even his own family only recognize him as merely a man. For five chapters, you would read about what happens When the kingdom of God collides with earth, for five chapters, you would see all kinds of people wrestle with one singular question. And that is the question I pose to you now, the outpouring. Who is Jesus to you? Who do you think Jesus is? Because for the unbeliever, Or maybe the person, you might be sitting here unsure of where you are in your faith. The the teasing out of the answer to that question 
is a doorway into a grace-filled, love-embraced, mercy-driven life into the kingdom of God. But for the believer, for those who say confidently, oh, I've placed my faith and my trust securely and wholly in Christ Jesus who died for my sins and raised on the third for me and who is making all things new. If you, yes and amen, then this question acts as a diagnostic of your heart. Has Jesus become so familiar to me that I actually, if I think about it, I actually reject him and his call over my life with complacency and apathy? Does the flame of fervor for his mission still burn within me? See, it's, it's the setting of the follow-up questions to the main questions of who Jesus is where Mark directs our attention in this passage today. In light of who Jesus is, does his commands ring true in my life? Do I feel a passion, a zeal for his mission? In the war that is taking place in this world for our attention, for our unity, for our affections, is my response to all these things apathy or passivity or powerlessness? I want to tag our time in this passage, Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. Set apart and sent out. Set apart and sent out. As we see Jesus send his apostles out into the world to carry out his mission. I have a few observations from this text uh, as we sort of marry the marching orders of the apostles to the marching orders we have for us in this room today. So if you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And then I want to invite you to pray for me as I pray for you. As together we hear what thus saith the Lord. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 7. God's word reads like this. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. I woke up this morning battling a little stitch in the back of my throat. So if I cough, I'm very sorry. Or if I, you know, get real excited and lose my voice in the middle of that excitement, please don't lose momentum with me. I just got something back there I'm trying to get out. <clears throat> you may have heard of a little franchise called The Lord of the Rings. Uh, the books, which are a trilogy, are one of the best-selling books ever written. But that wasn't where I first learned of this beautiful work. My first encounter with this trilogy 
came from Peter Jackson's theatrical adaptations, the movies. They are also a trilogy. They're notoriously long, incredibly long. The extended cuts are like close to four hours. It's nuts. Uh, but they're really good. <clears throat> the gist of the story is twofold. Uh, a least of these young hobbit named Frodo is entrusted to destroy a supreme ring of power in the heart of a mountain behind enemy lines. Meanwhile, his companions, led by a human man named Aragorn, uh, are to resist the forces of evil publicly so that Frodo can carry out his mission in secret. Even though there are sort of two narratives working throughout the movies, everything that takes place is leading up to a singular moment. And it's in this moment I want to hone in on during this illustration of sorts. There comes a point toward the end of the third movie uh, where a gathering of all the warriors across the world would respond to the call of duty to march on the enemy's gates. This army ends up being a very small army. And they believe at this moment in the movie that Frodo has failed. All hope is lost. They are the last line of good against the mighty forces of evil. They have now been charged, commanded, entrusted to fight. Despite their differences, Despite their long-standing hate for each other's races, despite all their history and baggage, they answer the call to come together and defeat the unstoppable and innumerable army made up of all evil and foul creatures walking that world. Once they're faced at the enemy's gates, the enemy's army isn't even before them yet. They're just standing at the door. The reality of the impossibility of their situation dawns on them. They begin to feel that they cannot do what they came to do. It is impossible. They have all gathered to die. And it's there in that moment of doubt, in that moment of, of, of lax thinking, in that moment of fear, where one of the most beautiful pre-war speeches is ever given in all of cinema. I wish I could give it all to you, but we'd be here for longer than we need to be. But in short, Aragorn says this. He says, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when we fail, but that is not this day. This day, we fight. You know, I share this long-winded illustration with you this morning because, family, the reality is, is that there is a war among us. And it's not a war that's political between right and left. It's not a war that is moral between conservative and liberal. It's not even a war that's economic between the rich and the poor. It's not a war that is cold between superpowered nations. No, it's a spiritual war that surely plays into all the other ones I mentioned. But it's a spiritual war with eternal consequences, C.S. Lewis writes, that the world is enemy-occupied territory. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in the great campaign of sabotage. I believe, family, C.S. Lewis is right. 
And the Christian church has somehow adopted this wartime mentality to mean one of two things, either a hyper-radicalized, over-emotional, absolutely irrational fear-mongering, or complete and utter apathy towards holiness. And one has bred the jerk, and the other has bred the sluggard. Both have played into the enemy's schemes to divide and break up the body's effectiveness in doing the very work we've been called to do. Our text this morning shows us the beginnings of our calling, the beginnings of our missional mentality. And it is my prayer that we return to this way, the way, the way of liberation and freedom, the way of light and love. For a world that is agitated and dark. At this point in Jesus' ministry, almost everything that you would read in Mark's gospel, those five chapters I talked about, would have been for the sake of his disciples' growth. Their spiritual growth. Jesus has been revealing himself to the disciples repeatedly and exposing to them the reception of his message in the world. We've seen people, mostly the disenfranchised, the outcast, the least of these, respond with faith and receive life-changing grace and love. And we've seen others, those with religious fervor and those of great influence, even those who were in his hometown, reject him, belittle him, plot his death. We've seen Jesus reveal his power and authority over and over and over again, all for a purpose. Jesus has been preparing his disciples for this moment right here to send them out to carry on the mission of the kingdom, to go and proclaim the good news to all who would hear. Our text this morning makes very clear, and Mark's purpose in writing this is to teach us those who are disciples of Jesus today, that Christ has prepared us for this moment. This time, for gospel mission in our world, just as he did the disciples in his day. I'm going to make my case. Look back at the first part of verse 5. Mark 6, end of verse 5 into verse 6. This is what happened at Nazareth. It says, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them. The 12 disciples have now learned something, some incredibly important things. They've seen Jesus perform great and mighty works, calming a storm, casting out a legion of demons, healing an incurable disease, raising a little girl from the dead. But now they sit transfixed in this synagogue, listening to the Nazarene people not just reject Jesus, but insult him. In this, though, they learn that there are situations where a lack of faith produces no mighty work. There would be times where the way would be brutally avoided. They learned that this calling to spread the gospel was not going to be easy. Family, there's a message for us in here this morning. Our call to go forth, our call to live in the light and in light of the gospel will not be easy. 
will, will most certainly mean that there will be moments of no progress. That there will be temptation for us to respond in a subconscious rejection of Jesus, if not an outright one. Examine your hearts, family. Does the fire still burn for the gospel? Does it burn for others to share the good news of his scandalous grace? If Christ found it hard to work because of a lack of faith in the people hearing how much more will we in light of unbelief? And yet Jesus sends his disciples out into an unbelieving world. Into a seemingly impossible battle. But he gives us more grace to aid us in our journey as he did for the disciples. Look at the second half of verse 6. And he went out among the villages teaching. Even still. After being rejected, Jesus is making this circuit, this teaching tour around Galilee with his disciples, even though this is far too much work for one man to carry. You think about that. Jesus is in his humanity. Don't think of his deity. Jesus is 100% human too, right? To spread the gospel as one man throughout all of Galilee, that, that's a lot. And you got to do it in three years' time, buddy, right? So in order to extend this message to as much ground as he could cover, Jesus does something that is not really a popular American concept. He flattens the organization, decentralizes the structure of work. Here we find our first observation, aid in our mission. Jesus sends us in his name. Look at verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He does something we've seen before. He sends out heralds, representatives to speak and do miraculous things in his name. This is so incredibly kingly. That's what they would do. Kings, when they would take over a region, would send heralds out into that region to spread the good news of the king. That herald would go out into the surrounding area and inform that town or that city that they would now be under the reign of somebody else. So here's what you could do in terms of taxes. That's usually the herald's job in ancient times, to go out and declare the good news of the king. The new rules in which they are to live in and get that money too. But Jesus sends these brothers to spread the message, not of conquering, but of freedom. Freedom from sin's tyranny. Freedom from the bondage of sickness and possession. Freedom from a world that seeks to keep them captive, never to run, or, or never able to run away from the everlasting arms of God. These men, imperfect and honestly just dumb, if you just read about them, the disciples do all sorts of crazy things. They say all sorts of crazy mess. These are the ones chosen to be heralds of King Jesus. See, in Jewish culture, to be someone's representative in this way that Jesus is doing it was to be as of the man himself. I don't miss that. Don't miss that. In the way Jesus sends the disciples, in the way that he sends you and I, 
To be his representative to the world is to be of the person who sent you. What a great way. I'm not coming to you as me. I'm coming to you as the one who sent me. No, church, that's a word for us today. And can I talk to the believers in the room for just a second? Before God saved you from the curse of sin, you were all sorts of jacked up too. And the Bible calls you dead. Dead in your trespasses. But God has snatched you up, gave you life, and then imputed to you righteousness that is not your own. Everything good about you doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. You see where I'm going with this? This means that if you're a believer in this place, there is therefore no condemnation for God's elect. It is God who justifies. God has snatched you up, taken your broken and sinful frame, taken your sin-stained, worn-out, beat-up clothes, tossed them away. Chain them to cinder blocks and let them drown in the sea of forgetfulness. And then he gives you new garments to wear. And they're not yours. They're Christ's. You don't come into this world now preaching a gospel, wearing the smell of yesterday's sin. Oh, no, family. You come in Christ's name. Because he saved you, because he redeemed you, because he's justified you, and he's given you his own righteousness so that when you come to the world, they don't see you, they see him. This is grace, and we don't deserve it. This is grace that we did not earn. This is the sermon God gives to us this morning. This is exactly how Mark began his gospel account. Flip over to Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared. You see that transition? There's a prophecy that somebody is coming to spread the message of Jesus before Jesus comes. And Mark says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist was a herald of the gospel. John was not going around from place to place preaching and baptizing in his own message of good news. But Jesus' good news as the coming kingdom of God had appeared on earth. And so in similar fashion, Jesus sent out his 12 heralds, representatives of himself, to go out and teach and preach in the area. Even, look, look at just the intentionality, even the fact that there's 12 is significant. That they, they, they represented, they were a type, a reflection uh, a historical illustration of the 12 tribes of Israel. And yet they're not coming in Israel's name. No. Jesus gives them authority. <coughs> His own authority. 
<coughs> excuse me, the Greek word for authority here means power. It's where we get the word dynamite from. He gives them power over the unclean spirits. Jesus authorizes them and he empowers them. <coughs> Excuse me. I think of Moses here. And, and later I'll, I'll show you why I think Jesus does too. But Moses, who is Jewish by descent, grows up in the Egyptian royal family. And he flees after he kills an Egyptian guard. And in the wilderness, God appears to him and says, return to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Jesus and Moses is shocked. What? Me? <coughs> I'm wanted. I can't go back there. I got a record. They see me, they bound me. I can't do that. Go back to Pharaoh? I've disappointed him. That's like my brother. Want me to go back to him? I have all this family baggage there. <coughs> no, I got this stutter. I can't speak well. How could you choose me? Go choose somebody else. But that's not what God does, right? No, 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 no. He authorizes Moses, empowers Moses to go, to do the seemingly impossible, to face the hatred of Egypt, to face the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh and say, this is the decree, the good news of the one true God. Family, I'll tell you this morning, <coughs> do not remove yourself from this text. See the full narrative, the consistency of God in all things. If you're a believer in this room, you are a sent out people, a people chosen, redeemed, sanctified, and empowered to answer this great call. And here's the thing. Jesus does not send you alone. Observation number two. Jesus doesn't send us alone. Our text says he sent them out two by two. The Greek here is duo, duo. If we close the lens and only look at this strictly for the context of the Jew, Jesus did this to reflect a legal requirement of an authentic testimony coming from two witnesses. We still do this today some, no? If you were to tell me something unbelievable in a one-on-one -on -one setting, I might give you the benefit of the doubt because I love you. That's might, that's not even certainty, right? But if you had somebody else come with you and say, no, no, I was, I was there. Well, now I'm more inclined, ain't I? Well, it's the same way in Jewish law and practice. If you bring a charge against a brother, well, you better have somebody there with you who saw it happen, right? And so Jesus is reflecting this a little bit, right? So for the, for the Jew to receive this message is important because it's not just one man coming with foolery. Oh, he's brought a witness with him. <coughs> now, I have my brother here, but, but there's another practical implication of this strategy. Relational encouragement. It is always easier to fight the good fight of faith 
when you have someone praying with you, <coughs> encouraging you, championing the cause with you. I can't, for the love of God, get this out of my throat. <clears throat> Family, when the ways of the world tempt you to seclusion, know that what you need is to remember your community. That you were not sent out to do this impossible task alone, that you have others going out with you, testifying with you, picking you up when you feel weak, encouraging you when you feel rejected, holding you up to bear your burdens when you fall and stumble and take away from the testimony of the Lord. You go out together. <coughs> Jesus gives you freedom from isolation. He gifts you with community on mission. I love this point. I care very deeply about its significance. If I could just be real with you. I, I care very deeply that we remind ourselves that God has not saved me to be alone. It don't matter if I'm an introvert, and I am. God has saved me to a people. That is the nature of our faith. It is communal. God has never called a man to isolation, but always to the cost of community. Family, this is our story too. We together are facing the seemingly impossible, hostile, wicked ages of this world, but also we are empowered, encouraged, and with one another in Christ. Third observation comes from Jesus' additional instruction about the disciples' journey. Look at verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. All of this instruction, you might be looking like, that's crazy, that ain't me. I'm going to take these shoes with me. And you for sure are going to know I'm going to take some money. You ever stay in somebody's house and we're like, I should have got an Airbnb. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, yeah. You can testify to that. I don't know. I've done it. it was like, this would have been better if I was on my own. I would have I ate that cost. Lovely. All of this instruction communicates one very important point with very practical implication that should cause us to examine our hearts. God will provide all your needs. The Lord's promise of provision does not mean your comfort. Provision and comfort can be opposing unless the definition of your comfort and contentment is found only in what the Lord desires that is good and right for you. Now look closely at these instructions. How reminiscent of the Jewish exodus from Egypt. 
You think they had time to pack their clothes? They took nothing to the wilderness. Now Jesus has Moses in mind. He tells the disciples, you're going to travel light. You need to be ready in a moment's notice to leave as God leads you. This is exactly how it was for the children of Israel. They could only take with them the minimum. No time to pack, no extra clothes, no extra shoes. Uh -uh, you got a staff, but not an extra one. So if that one breaks, you on your own. No money, no food. This is providential freedom. It don't sound like freedom, but it is freedom. This is liberation from servitude. Oh, countercultural this is. All of these items, the bread, the bag, the money, the extra clothes, all of these things represent that which secures life. But Jesus is telling them, your provisions are to come from the people who repent and believe in the gospel upon hearing your message. Essentially, Jesus tells them, you'll get what you need as you go. God will provide. When the Israelites fled Egypt, they had nothing. And God provided shade from the sun, bread from the heavens, water from rocks for their thirst. Everything was taken care of. This is not an ancient idea. This is true today. I love the way Paul encourages the Philippian church. He says in chapter 4, verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his richness in glory in Christ Jesus. Even Jesus says it directly in Matthew's account, and this is my paraphrase. He says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink or what you will wear. Is not life more than food? Is not the body more than clothing? Aren't the birds fed and sheltered? Isn't the, la the grass clothed with lilies? If God provides for the birds in the air and the beasts of the field and the grass on the ground, how much more for the children of God? Oh, church, how difficult this is for us who worship from the seat of our controlled comfort. But can I challenge you in love? Does your desire for your own comfort get in the way of your mission to do the Lord's work? Oh, I think we should cling to Jesus' words here. We need, we need a stripped-down expectation of life. A stripped down attachment to the world. Jesus continues with the instruction. He says, when you stay in someone's home, you can't leave it until you're done in that town. You're like, no brainer. But you've never been faced with this problem. And it's happened to me before. I've had to, this is hard. See, so, so Jesus is saying, if Bob offers you a twin, a twin bed in the basement, then that's your place. You can't leave Bob's house to go to Jose's house who's offering you the pool house. Oh, you got to stay with Bob. Guard your heart from these things, from these idols of comfort. Let your yeses be yeses and your noes be noes. But then Jesus continues, he says, if you find that a place doesn't want you, they won't hear you. 
leave there with the dust on. Now, not, not only has Jesus modeled for them being rejected, he was preparing them to receive it themselves. He tells them the manner in which they respond to rejection, shake off the dust from their place and leave in peace. The shaking off the dust was something Jews would do whenever they left a Gentile area and returned into their land. So if they have to go out on business and cross Gentile grounds, when they left the Gentile grounds, they would shake off the dust from them as to get off the unclean. <clears throat> Remember, the Israelites were God's people and the Gentiles were pagans. So the disciples would, whenever they encountered rejection, remind themselves of Jesus' words here. I won't be mad. I won't be sad. I won't be angry. I won't be frustrated. Instead, I'm going to leave peacefully, dusting myself off because they didn't say no to me. They said no to Christ, and that was far worse. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's desacralizing land in exchange for faith. He's flipping the societal understanding of salvation from ethnic group to faith. From a people of a certain tribe, a certain nation, and a certain tongue to every person from every tribe, nation, and tongue. He's already sent a missionary before this into Gentile territory and now he's using Jewish custom not as a symbol for leaving unholy land but rather as a symbol of rejection from freedom that the gospel provides. With the coming of King Jesus, his kingdom, no longer is faith attributed to race or location. No, Jesus is basing faith on grace. Those who have ears to hear will hear everything that Jesus has to offer for them. It doesn't matter whether they're Gentile. It doesn't matter whether they're a Jew. No, it does not matter. There is no type of person, no attribute that we can see in them that signals to us, oh, I can't preach to them. They're not part of the family. No, Jesus says, if they're alive, they're dead. Preach to them. So that grace through faith can make them alive. To each and every person, preach the word. To every person of every tribe, nation, and tongue, preach the word. To the poor and the rich, preach the word. To the preschool and the university campus, preach the word. To expecting mamas and great-grandfathers, preach the word. To all peoples outpouring, preach the word. And last, I'll close with this. The work will be done. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 12. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. In obedience, the 12 preached repentance, and they did miraculous works. They, they experienced great power in bringing the gospel to an unbelieving world. Repentance, deliverance, healing were all present in their work, just as if Christ was with them in 
person, family. These two verses are just a foretaste of what the church at large would get to experience in totality through the power of the Holy Spirit. You and I get to participate in the advancement of the kingdom of God to spread the gospel, to see people repent, bring deliverance and healing for the sake of Christ's fame. There is no greater call on our lives, no greater honor than to be able to participate in the liberation of souls. But we cannot conclude our time without true and honest self-examination. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? Because if he's Lord, then that means you've been sent. If he's Lord, then that means you, like the saints of old, get to brave a dark world with nothing in our pockets, not seeking comfort or pleasure, but honest trust and faith that the Lord will provide all our needs along the way for his glory. But maybe, maybe Jesus is not Lord to you. Then friend, I invite you this morning to come and enter his courts of love, to see mercy sketched all over your life and see how he's been preparing you for such a time as this, preparing you, softening you to receive his love. You are not too far for him to get you. You are not too far from his sight. You have always been watched over. He has always been calling you to himself. Receive him this morning, friend. So that you then may sing that beautiful hymn. But Jesus is my portion. My constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches over me. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. For his eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches over me. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.